We are live. We are live. The Hunt for Success podcast. Ryan McCracken, Cody Steinman, and today, Tony Golick. 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 <laughs> you might have to correct me a few times. Yeah. Uh, so uh, episode number 25, I'm really excited about today's episode. So you and I met briefly uh, last week right. um, and uh, kind of got introduced. I got introduced to the Children's Justice Center. And that's where you and I met um, at one of the planning events for their upcoming fundraiser. Um, So definitely want to start off today with kind of talking about um, the Children's Justice Center. And we're going to do something for the first time on this podcast is we're going to use this platform to help raise some funds for the fundraiser um, on September 22nd, I believe. Something like that. It's uh, right in there. I can't remember off the top of my head exactly which day in September. In September. So we have uh, about a month and a half, roughly, uh, and uh, I'm giving us a goal of ten grand. Great. So um, we'll dive in. But before we do, you guys can click on. uh, There should be a link somewhere around our YouTube window, um, uh, or on social media. You can find it. But it's our GoFundMe page. Uh, It's the first time I've done a GoFundMe page. I think if you go to GoFundMe.com and just search for Clark County Children's Justice Center. Uh, you can get on there and donate, and uh, let's, let's see if we can hit our goal of uh, 10000 So, um, So, Tony, uh, Clark County uh, prosecuting attorney, right. correct? Correct. Um, I want to hear how you got there, but tell me a little bit about your involvement with the Children's Justice Center. Okay. Uh, I think the easiest thing to do when talking about the Children's Justice Center is to give people kind of perspective of what it is, is to, is to start off by explaining if we didn't have a Children's Justice Center. Okay, so let's say there was no Children's Justice Center. Uh, and um, there was a case, like so many cases, where a child was physically or sexually abused. Unfortunately, it happens frequently. Um, so let's say, just purely hypothetical, uh, a six-year-old boy or girl is uh, being sexually assaulted over a period of time. Uh, and then that, that child makes a disclosure, uh, discloses to um, a school counselor uh, or to a doctor or to a neighbor, make, makes a disclosure to somebody. Uh, and so... Or if somebody notices. Like or yeah, if, or if somebody the, sees... If a physician sees bruises sure, on their arms. Yeah, or, yeah, if it's a physical one, yeah, it could be at a doctor's appointment. Maybe a doctor would see a uh, physical injury. More common, though, the, the, the vast majority of cases are sexual assault cases, so it's, it's usually a, an actual disclosure that the child will, you know, confide in somebody. Um, so uh, let's say something like that uh, happened and there was no Children's Justice Center. So you'd have uh, CPS would get involved um, and law enforcement. Those, you know, somebody would call 911 and somebody, you know, and CPS would get involved. So you'd have CPS would be downtown, uh, and uh, they'd be in an office, and they'd start to work the case. Is that county CPS, or is it state? State. 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 And, and then you'd have a law enforcement agency. If it was in the county, it'd be the sheriff's office, or if it was in one of the cities within the county, uh, it'd be the city, like, say, the Vancouver Police Department. So you'd have a law enforcement officer that would start to investigate. Now, if you had no Children's Justice Center, it, would just, it could just be any, could be a patrol officer, maybe a detective, uh, and it could be somebody with no experience in those types of cases. So somebody would have to take the kid down to the police department, and they would have to talk to 
some uniform patrol officer about this, you know, really horrible, really intimate, really difficult uh, thing to talk yeah. about. Um, and then that officer would do an investigation if they knew how to do that kind of investigation, get a case to refer to the prosecutor's office. Uh, and then you'd have a deputy prosecutor, again, if we didn't have a CJC, a deputy prosecutor that maybe didn't have any training in how to, uh, how to handle these cases, how to prosecute them. Um, uh, and they might find that sort of case difficult and awkward to work on. So that, that was where we were back in, say, 1990 here in Clark County, where you know, these cases, unfortunately, they're frequent, uh, but there was no specialization back then. So back in uh, about 1990, uh, my predecessor, Art Curtis, and a, and a number of folks in the community back then uh, realized, hey, we need, to, we need to do a better job on these cases. We need to, we need to specialize on these because these are, these are different. These aren't like bank robberies. You know, every cop knows how to. Well, and were they keeping track of the convictions? Like the, the success? Sure, yeah. Or uh, unsolved cases? Uh, yeah, there was always data on that, but a lot of the cases just wouldn't even make it uh, kind of through that gauntlet of um, a disclosure and then a, an investigation that resulted in an arrest or referral. Uh, and then in the prosecutor's office back then, we kept data like we do now on um, cases that were filed versus those that weren't. So it was just not a good system. I think, you know, back then everybody's, their heart was in the right place on those cases, but everybody realized back then, hey, you need to get people that want to do these cases, that have specialized training in these cases, and get them all under the same roof so that they're all talking to each other about these cases so that that child doesn't have to go to the PD and talk to some big uniform patrol yeah. cop about this. Uh, they don't have to talk about it over and over. Uh, they can, you know, we can minimize the number of times that they have to talk about it. And, and, and we can recruit people from within our uh, agencies, prosecutor's office, uh, uh, law enforcement, CPS, advocates, that want to work on these cases. Because, you know, people uh, in, you know, in, these, um, in these jobs, they have different things that they want to do different things that they're good at. So we, we want to have the people that, that have the skill set that like those working in those cases, get them working in those cases. And then, like I say, get them all together so that you don't have people from different agencies that are, they don't know each other, they don't specialize in these, maybe they do one of these a year. Have them working on these cases regularly. Go to training on how to do these cases. Go to national, state training on how to do these cases. Uh, and create a center that looks at what's the best practice, you know, the nationally accepted best practice for how to handle these cases and specialize on these, because they're really, really important cases, right? You know, if, um, if we don't get these right, um, then the child could continue to be abused, the abuser could continue to go on and... Uh, when, after our short conversation last week, I kind of felt like I did when I went on a ride-along. I've been on mm. a couple ride-alongs right. over the years, once when I was 17 and once a few years ago. And you think you live in this ultra-safe community and right. there's not bad things there that go on. You have no idea until you do a graveyard ride-along right. with the local deputy on how bad it is and what things go on in your community, right. in the parking lot of your grocery store at 3 sure. in the morning. Sure. And every time I... Do every The both times I've done the ride-along, I come away going holy crap, I have a whole new respect for law enforcement 
and I have a whole new respect for my safety and what goes on in my community. Mm-hmm. And it made me want to get involved a little bit more. And it, I think crimes against children is something that people don't think about on a daily basis. Right. And it's not a fun topic to, right. to discuss. I mean, you shared one story with me the other night, but even in that group of people, it was not, it's not a fun topic to right. talk about. And so um, when I walked away, I, I said, you know, this is one of those, um, I don't know, is it, it's a not-for-profit, is that correct? Or? Uh, so the Children's Justice Center is funded by uh, city and county. So you have uh, county prosecutors that are county-funded folks, uh, uh, and then city and county deputies, uh, CPS, state-funded folks are there also. So you have, you have your kind of regular government funding mechanisms, but you, we also have, uh, fortunately, very fortunately, folks in the community that care about this, that want to help and see to it that uh, the folks that are dedicated to doing this work, and it's hard work, uh, that they have extra support to uh, be able to do things even better. And that's, that's uh, what the Friends of CJC and the Windermere Foundation, uh, what their group has been able to do is, is do some really significant fundraising uh, so that at the Children's Justice Center, uh, we can provide even better resources, uh, better wraparound resources for kids that, that have to go through uh, this experience. Well, one example of that you gave was uh, hiring an interpreter mm-hmm. uh, to help with a specific case. Is that correct? Right, yeah. Actually, uh, so we have victim advocates. Uh, so we have victim advocates throughout uh, the justice system that that, uh, that assist victims going through uh, the criminal justice court process for all of the different types of cases that we handle in the prosecutor's office. So. You know, if it's a homicide, one of our victim advocates will work with the surviving family members to um, kind of help uh, help them navigate and understand what's happening in the system. Uh, in a domestic violence case, uh, you know, domestic violence victim will have a victim advocate. So, uh, in child abuse cases, you know, we have victim advocates there at the Children's Justice Center. They're they're an integral part uh, of the center. Um, well, we realized that one big problem that we had at the Children's Justice Center is the advocates that we uh, had there, only English speakers, no Spanish-speaking victim advocates. And, uh, you know, we have a significant uh, number of cases that uh, come through the center where uh, the victim or the victim's family members, they, you know, they they don't speak English or they don't, or they don't speak English it's well. It's not their first language. Yeah, not their first language. So um, we were able, specifically with fundraising from the Windermere Foundation, we were able to hire another victim advocate, so another one who is a Spanish speaker, which has been a hugely helpful uh asset to the to the So center. not necessarily a translator, but somebody who's right. an advocate who also speaks exactly, Spanish. Exactly, exactly. So uh, we would have translator services uh, for cases in general. So the court has to provide translators. So uh, if we had a case, uh, and we have, you know, have this throughout the system, and, you know, if it's, you know, if the person, uh, say it's not Spanish, say it's Russian or say some other language, um, you know, we can get translator services, but that's just, you know, purely translation and nothing else, you know. Yeah. 
It's, it's much better to actually have an advocate that can, uh, you know, speak in, uh, in the person's, you know, yeah, first language. I would imagine the level of shock that has to be overcome oh, yeah. when interviewing the family members or interviewing children yeah. is high. And so I could see how having someone that speaks your language oh, there yeah. that can comfort you. And, and, yeah, I could see that. that would be a big difference. Huge difference, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, translators, they are just going to purely translate. Victim advocates, they're there to, to talk to the victim. And, and le- talk to le- the leading questions family. and... Um, re- really getting getting the the child to be able to explain themselves if you and will. trust right yeah tr- yeah trust uh, the advocate's job isn't uh, actually to to interview the child about mm-hmm. the incident that's not their job that's the forensic interviewer's okay. job gotcha. um, but the advocate's job is is really just to be support uh, you know to explain the, pro- the court process, answer questions about the court process, a lot of work with the family in, in answering those questions. Could, you know, imagine like you were talking about, you know, the, the average person, you don't think about this stuff in your life. You hope to go through life and never uh, yeah. think about this stuff. Uh, and then all of a sudden you're thrust into this world. Um, you're going to have a lot of questions. And uh, a lot of people, they're going to need, they're going to need somebody to talk to. Uh, they're going to, um, they're going to need somebody that can reassure them. Uh, they're going to need somebody sometimes uh, to take them over to the courthouse and show them, you know, before they go and testify in trial, this is a courtroom. This is where the judge is going to be. This is where the jury is going to be. Uh, this is kind of how it will go. Do, uh, does the uh, defendant uh, get similar treatment? Uh, so defendants, uh, again, they will always have uh, translator services. Uh, defendants, uh, if they are indigent, they get a court-appointed defense attorney. So there's not a defendant advocate program. Uh, I mean, you could say that about defense attorneys because yeah. they advocate for uh, the defendant. Uh, but the uh, the victim advocate programs are actually uh, programs that are associated with the prosecutor's office to help victims in the uh, in the way that I've been talking and, about just now. And do those the same advocates also help? Um, I mean, and I'm not an attorney by any means, but with the defendants, as far as getting information out of them, interviewing them, and no. making sure that it leads to a conviction, or no, no, not at all. So uh, the victim advocates that I'm talking about, they're actually connected to the prosecutor's office. So they can't talk to uh, a defendant. So a, a defendant, somebody who's charged with a crime, you know, we could be talking about you know one of these crimes of CJC or any other crime in the system. Um, so once they have an attorney, uh, the Sixth Amendment right attaches, and they cannot be uh, interviewed, talked to, questioned uh, without until the without, trial. Yeah, without without counsel present. Yeah, and yeah, until if they if they choose to testify, if they choose to, uh, then they can be cross-examined by the by the prosecutor. Well, the whole point of this podcast is to uh, share stories of success in one form or another. Right. And it's really easy to get glamorous and get excited about CEOs running big companies or entrepreneurs starting companies, but you never think about the success stories that are in your community that aren't derived about. Um, achieving a certain level of business or financial success, but recognizing a problem in the community mm-hmm. and then coming together and forming something like right. the Children's Justice League, right. I think is a huge success story. It's a huge success for for our community. 
uh, it's one that, like I say, we're fortunate that we've had it for uh, since the early 90s in our community. But there are a lot of other communities, you know, across the nation that don't have something did, like that. Did this. they exist during uh, uh, Wesley Allen Dodd? Uh, so, yes. Uh, that would have been right did. when they started, yeah, right? Yeah, uh, that one actually, uh, it, that was prosecuted by Art Curtis. Uh, it was it was not I think specifically identified as a children's justice center case. It was prosecuted as a you know, horrible homicide case. Yeah. Uh, so a little different, uh, but uh, yeah, that was around the time that these were forming up. Whenever I think about crimes against children, that is always that's always the the case I remember oh, yeah. because I was a kid when that here, happened. Yeah, and, yeah, and I remember my mom would not let me go in the bathroom by myself at the movie theater. Right. I mean, it was on lockdown. And right, it terrified right. every parent. Sure, yeah. right, because it was right here locally, and yeah. it was a really creepy case. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. It'd be great if we didn't have another one like that here in Clark County ever. Yeah, but yeah, this, that that sort of case certainly makes the average citizen think about. So how many cases in a given period of time, maybe a year, uh, would be like an average in a year? How many cases do you see uh, like this, like the, the, would the children just like get involved in? Yeah, so uh, if you were to look uh, over the last decade uh, at the numbers of the Children's Justice Center, the average about 175 wow. cases per year. So we, we've uh, gone just as in high. The county. Yeah, so these are the cases that come to the Children's Justice Center. So uh, cases that occur countywide, uh, whether they happen in Vancouver you know, or Battleground or somewhere in unincorporated Clark County, um, they'll all come to the Children's Justice Center for prosecution. So if we actually filed a case. So we've, uh, we've been down as low as uh, about 150 uh, in a couple of those years, like I say, over the last decade, and, and a little over 200. But like, like I say, if you were to... Uh, just draw a line. It'd be an average of about 175, and those and those are those are all felony level child abuse cases. Um, some child pornography cases also. Um, so they are predominantly sexual abuse cases. That's about 80 percent, uh, and then the remainder uh, are going to be um, some, like I say, child pornography cases, uh, and then also. Uh, felony level physical assault cases. And these are all uh, kids uh, as the victims on all the cases. So quite a few, unfortunately. Um, what about, and this may not be a, a topic that falls along, but one of the big things in the news now is um, uh, like sl uh, sex, sex, trafficking. Sex, trafficking, sex trafficking, that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. Are you, does the Children's Justice Center see those type of cases too? Yes. Um, so child sex trafficking cases are, um, they're in the news a lot. Uh, large jurisdictions uh, get a fair number of those cases. Um, we get, we do those cases at the Children's Justice Center. We don't get very many of those cases. Those, those cases, um, uh, they can't, they're, they're generally very difficult for law enforcement to, to crack those cases. So we, we, we all, every year we have some, some years more than others, um, certainly more than we have had in the past. Uh, across the river, they, they do a lot more of those cases. Um, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a number that's hard to 
quantify. You'll hear some folks, you know, talk about uh, child sex trafficking here in Clark County and they'll make it sound like there are really a lot of them. Mm -hmm. um, like I said, it's hard to quantify the numbers because the only way you can really quantify the numbers are, you know, a, a number of cases where we have an arrest uh, and, uh, and a chargeable case. So those numbers aren't big. Now, if you talk to folks that work on those cases, law enforcement officers that work on those cases, um, they are very clear that the, the number of cases where those are occurring uh, are unfortunately significantly more uh, than we're able to get good cases. Um, problems with those cases are, um, uh, often, very oftentimes, the uh, the child that's being trafficked is not uh, not willing to come forward. You know, not willing to cooperate with law enforcement. Or if they are, then um, law enforcement will kind of get a case going, and then and then the the victim will fall off the radar. We have a lot of issues uh, with that. So law enforcement. What do you mean, works, fall off the radar? Uh, move, leave, disappear. Um, you know, it used to be that. Uh, you know, so a lot of those cases are, uh, you know, sex traffickers where, you, you know, you have uh, an individual that is, uh, you know, prostituting under, you know, kids. Mm -hmm. um, it used to be that uh, law enforcement prosecutors' offices to go back, back a decade, they would, they would arrest the, the kids uh, uh, and charge them in juvenile courts with prostitution. Uh, you know, and there's a realization, well, that's not the right thing to do. You, you know, we have to, you know, identify those kids as victims of child sex trafficking and, you know, identify them as victims, treat them as victims, not prosecute them, not criminalize them. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's, that's a very positive thing, and, you know, we, we've done that here. Um, we still have problems just with, uh, you know, I feel like we have problems still with actually getting... Um, uh, getting those cases uh, fully investigated uh, and being able to make cases, but it's it's just the nature of those cases. Uh, it's you know you can throw more resources uh, in in law enforcement at those cases. That would be a positive. We'd be able to uh, make more, I'm sure, but they they are just very very tough cases. Uh, uh, so. I, I think I think you get more successful prosecutions in larger jurisdictions, but I think it's mostly a, a function of they just have a lot more of the issue than we do. And uh, not to keep going on about the um, sex trafficking, but what are those the cases you've seen? What is it like? Is it like organized with a big group of of criminals, or is it maybe one person? It's usually smaller. Smaller. Yeah, usually smaller. So it's usually. Um, uh, either one person uh, that uh, you know um, has you know one or uh, or a small number uh, of um, of children. Uh, we've had some cases where there have been mm, more people involved. Those ones have been uh, cases where they're uh, gang gang type cases, and it's part of what the gang is doing is sex trafficking. Also, so we've had a few of those cases. Um, we've not had one that we have, you know, identified, been able to prosecute in Clark County where there's, you know, a large, you know, uh, sophisticated sex trafficking ring. We haven't had that sort of thing. 
That's not to say it doesn't exist. Yeah. What about, do a lot of these cases come up after the crimes happen? Like, for example, do you have uh, people that maybe are older than 18 that come out and say, look, oh, yeah. 10 years that's ago, absolutely, I was abused by this person. Yeah. Is that a lot of it? Yeah, yeah. In fact, that's, that's where you get a lot of the data from folks that are working in this area uh, to identify how big the problem is. Uh, and that's exactly how they get it is, uh, you know, a lot of times the uh, folks that are working in this area, uh, they'll interview, um, you know, a 22-year-old that's engaged in prost- prostitution uh, and, you know, talk to that person about, you know, what, what happened, you know, and, yeah, it's just very, very common that they indicate that, you know, they were 15 when they got started and it was, you know, some some guy uh, that uh, started started traffic them, some guy or, you know, some group of guys or uh, or a gang. Um, and not just with the sex trafficking, but with all, all the crimes against children, is there a statue, like if I'm 25 and I say when I was 10, something happened? Is there is there a certain time where... Yeah, yeah, so there are statute of limitations. Uh, there's, there are statutes of limitations for uh, all kinds of crimes, uh, and uh, so for uh, child abuse cases, uh, there are uh, age ranges and there are statutes of limitation that uh, rely on times of disclosure, age, and those, uh, those statutes of limitations uh, relate to the age ranges, the class of crime, ABC crime, uh, and the time. And those statutes of limitations uh, continue to uh, get expanded by the legislature, which I think is a, uh, a, a positive, thing. A yeah, positive thing. Yeah. Well, it's, um, you know, like I said, it's kind of like a, a ride-along. It's a horrible thing that happens, and uh, um, I think it's a really good uh, fundraiser, a good uh, well, nonprofit to, yeah. to donate to. Um, if people want to get more information on the Children's Justice Center, uh, they can go to the county webpage. Right. Um, where else can they go? Uh, so Windermere, I, I don't know the, you know exactly. Uh, so it's the Windermere Foundation that puts on this large fundraiser that's coming up in September. Um, I don't have at my fingertips, uh, you know, the, the contact information for the Windermere Foundation. Right, we'll find it. Okay. Um, so just, just kind of getting back, uh, just wrapping up uh, briefly on the, you know, where we are now. Yeah. Uh, with the Children's Justice Center, you know, I kind of talked about what, you know, what it would be like without the Children's Justice Center, you know, so now, you know, we have this robust Children's Justice Center. Uh, we have four deputy prosecutors. They're dedicated and specialized uh, in this kind of work. They, they do these cases all the time, super trained up, uh, like I say, very dedicated to it. We have detectives from the Sheriff's Office and from Vancouver Police Department. We've got uh, CPS, uh, people right there. Uh, we have victim advocates right there. We have um, a forensic interviewer that is trained in interviewing kids. And th- this is the part where it's actually doing the interview and asking the child about yeah. what happened. Uh, it's all recorded so the child you know, doesn't have to keep doing it over and over. Reliving it. Yeah, we have a, we have a director. We have uh, uh, an executive board. Uh, that is uh, made up of uh, officials, uh, city councilor, county council, uh, myself, sheriff, police chief, 
uh, APS uh, that you know steer the um, the Children's Justice Center, and, and it's 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 a very very um, effective. It's the best way to uh, to do justice. You know, to investigate cases, do a thorough investigation, make sure that um, you know we're only ch charging people that should be charged, you know, and, and doing good investigations and, and good thorough prosecutions. Because, you know, these have, these cases have huge ramifications on the life of the defendant. You want to make sure you're not making mistakes. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and then, you know, really, really good services for uh, the kids and the families of the kids uh, to really prioritize these really important cases and do, uh, you know, the best work that we can. And we're constantly looking at you know, what are best practices? What, you know, what, what changes uh, should we make to the center to, to make sure that we're doing the, the very best work that we can? And, ha you know, having, having this community group, you know, uh, folks like you uh, show up at a fundraiser, uh, folks like all, all the people that, that go to this great Windermere event and say, hey, this is an important thing. We want to make sure that we're doing the very best we can for kids that have to go through this. That community support is huge. Not only do we have, uh, you know, the fundraising dollars that allow us to do things like hire a Spanish-speaking victim advocate or a, a forensic interviewer, just that community support so that everybody maintains the focus on this. You know, all of the leaders uh, in the justice system, city and county government, just, you know, having people come forward and say, this is an important issue. You know, there are a lot of things I could donate money to, it, but this is something I care about. This is something that, you know, I'm going to go to a fundraiser for, I'm going to donate. Um, seeing, seeing that community support is really, really important. So I, I, I think it's great that you're, uh, you know, doing, doing this uh, in, the, in the podcast today well, and, and doing this. And I've seen, I've seen uh, what, um, my wife is in the uh, senior living or skilled nursing, mm -hmm. and so she's been involved with the, el the elderly abuse uh, right. center. And uh, so I got to hear a lot of the cases that were going on right. or a lot of the cases that would get identified um, during when, when somebody enters senior living right. or skilled nursing. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's the same thing with that. It's like that yep. right along. Like, people really do this in my community? And, yeah. And... Uh, um, both the elderly and but children. I mean, they're, they don't have um, the support that they should and mm -hmm. the awareness, like you said. Right. Um, and it is cool seeing um, all the people that are involved, um, uh, different companies and different mm -hmm. people that are involved in this uh, nonprofit. But. So real quick, I'm just going to pull up the screen capture. Uh, you can go to windermerevancouver.com uh front slash CJC Gala. Um, or if you just go to the Windermere Real Estate Vancouver website, uh, you'll see the CJC Gala auction. Um, and there's more information that you can, uh, that you can get from there. So, um, so if it's okay, I just want to, uh, and I might, if we get, if I'm going to get a little detailed here, right? So sure. I want to hear some of the stories if that's okay. If you're, if you're okay sharing them. Sure. Um, if you're listening, uh, you know, this may get, this may be hard to listen to. Um, but kind of going back to the Wesley Allen Dodd, do a lot of these convictions in, in the death penalty? Have you been involved with those? No, no, that's, 
The death penalty is very, very uncommon uh, in Washington. And in fact, there's a, you know, the governor has a moratorium on the death penalty. So we're... Um, when did that moratorium start? So uh, trying to remember the year. So it's... I can't, I, I can't say uh, exactly what, uh, what year uh, Governor Inslee issued a moratorium. <laughs> Even before that, um, uh, if, you, if you go back into uh, the uh, kind of late 80s through the mid-90s, it was, uh, so you had to, to get to the, a death penalty case, you have to have an aggravated murder in the first degree. That's the only crime uh, that where lawfully you can seek the death penalty. So you have to In the have, state of Washington. In the state of Washington. So that means uh, that it needs to be a murder that is intentional and premeditated. And there has to be an aggravator. So it's a, an aggravator off a specific list of one or more of 13 specific aggravators. Like give an um, example of what aggravator. Multiple, multiple victims uh, committing a... Uh, a robbery during the course of the premeditated intentional murder or a rape in the uh, course of the premeditated intentional murder or drive-by shooting in the course of the premeditated intentional murder. So it has you got to have a really specific uh, type of murder that basically the legislature said, okay, all murders are horrible, but if you commit one a premeditated intentional murder was one of these aggravators as like the most horrible of all the horrible murders. So that's, yeah. that's where you get into the ability to, to even seek the death penalty. Um, death penalty litigation uh, in the state um, is much less frequent now than it was 20 years ago. Uh, it's, a, it's a factor of um, um, a number of... Uh, of things, um, I, I would say probably the uh, the the length of litigation, the cost of litigation, uh, and most important, the lack of success uh, in death penalty litigation. So the the vast majority of cases, if a prosecutor files the death notice, uh, goes to trial, uh, and the jury after hearing the trial does does the penalty phase, comes back uh, with a uh, um, a, a death sentence verdict. Those cases generally get reversed a decade later uh, by Court of Appeals or Supreme Court in Washington and then back to either uh, a, a whole new sentencing phase or even a whole new trial. But in his case, he pled guilty to everything. Yeah, he, yeah, he pleaded he, guilty and then he wanted... He wanted the yeah, death penalty. Yeah, so yeah, that, that very... Uh, just everything about that case extraordinary yeah. uh, so um, we, we've not sought the death penalty uh, in quite some time here in Clark County we've had a, we've had a few cases uh, so I've been the elected prosecutor uh, since uh, January of 2011 um, and we've had a few cases uh, where we filed aggravated murder uh, but ended up either the person pleaded guilty to life without or uh, after great consideration, uh, looking at the case, mitigation package by the defense, extensive consultation with uh, surviving family members, uh, and lots of analysis, we've decided on those cases not to seek the death penalty and go to trial uh, and seek uh, sentences of life without, which we've obtained in all of those cases. 
What are some of the uh, other common um, sensing that happens in these crimes? So uh, in these cases, like I said, we're not talking about death penalty, but we are talking about very, very long prison sentences in a lot of these cases. A lot of these cases are very hotly litigated. Uh, it's common uh, in child abuse cases, more so in other serious cases that uh, the defendant might not have any priors. Uh, so they often have significant assets, uh, ability to hire private counsel, uh, and looking at a lot of time, you know, if, if the charge is multiple counts of rape of a child in the first degree, uh, you know, the defendant uh, can be looking at up to the rest of, uh, of life in prison. Uh, they'll, if they get convicted, they're going to they're gonna get sentenced to a very long sentence, you know, somewhere in the high teens to high 20s type number of years, uh, and then they this is the one type of case where you have uh, basically a parole board, but it's not parole in the standard sense where you can get a shorter sentence and get out on parole. It's actually you serve your whole sentence. Then you go before this board to decide, are we going to let you out or are you still a danger and are we going to hold you even longer? Uh, so it's kind of a reverse parole yeah. board almost. What do you think the standards are, the statistics for uh, uh, people that commit these crimes that are basically rehabilitated and are, you know, I guess you would say are truly sorry for what they did and they can come out and be a, you know, a, a normal member of society again. Yeah, that's a, you know, that's a tough question. So say we do 175 of these type of cases per year. Mm -hmm. So that'd be a small kind of cohort number if you're talking about uh, numbers in general and then to say, gosh, what percentage of those guys uh, really are truly sorry, really, uh, you know, address their problem, uh, go through robust treatment, actually really change? I can't accurately answer yeah. that question. <clears throat> what I, you know, what I, th what I think I can accurately say is, um, I'm going to give you my opinion on this. Yeah. If uh, if an adult uh, decides that they are going to sexually abuse a child uh, over a period of time, which is usually what we see, uh, and it's actually really common that when, you know uh, once the once the case comes to light, it turns out well there are other victims also, um, and you know if it's a 40 year old guy that's doing that um, you know is is that person really going to uh, that that you know is a 40 year old person that is doing that you know that they are going to be you know quote cured I, I think that's a low percentage Oh. Again, that's my that's my opinion. It's yeah. not you know it, uh, there. There's a lot of debate over that issue. There are, there are treatment programs. A lot of debate about how effective they are. They are. But. We've been talking a lot in the last couple episodes about just the division in in our political climate sure. and, and everything right now. But there's one topic you're going to get most people to agree on is that there's a special punishment that they need to have for people like that. It, you know, and I, I think you're right. And I think uh, if you just look at, you know, what our legislature in Washington has done, um, 
you know, they have identified these types of crimes as very serious and they have uh, made the sentencing ranges. You know, we're, we're bound to sentencing ranges in Washington. So you, you just take the seriousness level of the crime that they're convicted of uh, and you look at the offender score, the, the number of current offenses and prior offenses, you, you use a grid. You're like, okay, that's the sentencing range and the judge is bound to that sentencing range. Uh, unless there are very specific, specific aggravating or mitigating circumstances that generally have to sentence in those ranges. The ranges for uh, abusing kids, they're real high. So yeah, you know, there's, there's, there's clear <laughs> agreement that those, those are serious cases and, and they need to be uh, dealt with as such. Is it true that some prisons have a way of recognizing the ones that are in there for uh, um, sexual abuse towards kids, like they have to wear a certain colored jumpsuit or something. So, the, so the prison, uh, you know, the prison administration uh, is well well aware, you know, of what, uh, you know, when 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 a person goes to trial or they plead guilty, there's a judgment and sentence that you know has all of the information that goes to the prison, and the prison classification folks know all about that, uh, and then and then people and then the prisons, Department of Corrections, they classify folks and put them in different areas and uh, that's that's uh, more their thing uh, but they do have uh, you know we do have like a sexually violent predator program in Washington they go to McNeil Island specifically um, you know and, and you know if somebody goes to Walla Walla uh, they, you know they could be in you know some segregated unit versus generally pop, general population it just it just depends on how they're classified uh, I think prisons generally don't just say, well, we're going to put somebody in general population and if Let sex events, they, yeah. they're in a different color jumpsuit, that would be bad. Uh, <laughs> so that, that's not what occurs. But they, they, do, uh, they do classify folks in prison. Um, so I would imagine there's a lot of those types of crimes, but then there's probably crimes that aren't intentional child abuse or perceived by the um, person doing it as a... a, a, as a intentional child abuse maybe parents that uh still believe in spanking with a mm-hmm. belt right right do you right. do you see a lot of those cases as well yeah um th- those uh yes we we do see those um and uh those can be some uh some of those cases are pretty obvious you know where uh the, you know the corporal punishment is like you know way uh you know way over the top and it, you know it's clearly beating and there's you know you know, really bad injuries. You know, those are kind of quite obvious. There's there's others that, uh, that uh, uh, can be a little more difficult to parse out, and yeah, we do have to uh, make those determina- determinations. And and, and uh, the uh, the issue is whether it's reasonable parental discipline. So, uh, you know, well, where um, is that line? Is there a defined line? Yeah, like so, you can spank uh, your kids. Yeah, at so, up to a certain age or what? Uh, so it's, it, it has to do with injury. So you know if you know if you if, if a parent uh, you know uh, quote spanks a child with a stick and leaves significant bruising, that's not going to be reasonable parental discipline. If a parent decides you know to swat with an open hand, doesn't leave a mark. Uh, you know, and it's you know, what, a, what a parent would reasonably engage in. That's going to be reasonable parental discipline. Uh, we do have to make a determination, and there's there's this case law that gives guidance. Uh, you know, where uh, a court will determine, you know, based on a specific set of facts that that was or that wasn't. There are some that are 
kind of run on the line that you know uh, cops and lawyers can kind of debate mm-hmm. uh, whether it is. Uh, usually, if it's you know it's on the line and we're really debating about it, the default is going to be to not file a criminal charge. You know, we're we're going to want to file the ones where it's, it's clearly not a reasonable parental discipline. Those are the ones that we're going to. Well, and probably want. just the scare of uh, facing prosecution is enough to keep it, that from happening. Again. Yeah, I think it may be in uh, in some of those cases. Really, it really depends, you know, on um, the individual case. These are all really. Do you, do you see a lot of false claims, like maybe, um, maybe especially from teachers or physicians or neighbors that may think that there's abuse happening? So you have mandatory reporters, uh, teachers, physicians, uh, you know, folks uh, in those kind of positions uh, that uh, they, they actually have to report if they think that child abuse is occurring. Uh, so... Um, there are there are probably some cases where maybe they think there is and they think they need to report just to uh, be cautious. But but as far as you know, I think the way you couched it, do you see uh, a or lot like, of false okay. reports? I would say no. Okay. You know. do, uh, what about with children? Do children, especially when they become really snotty teenagers, then they say, "Oh, I'm going to pay my parents back. I'm going to tell my teacher they're hitting me." Um, see that? It I, you know it definitely happens, but. I, you know, I, I think the the percentage of that also really very low. You know, because that's a, um, you know, say the teacher. You know, the teacher is going to you know, call law enforcement. Um, I think it's, you know, human nature for a teacher not to want to pull that trigger. You know, if anything, uh, you know, uh, cops and prosecutors we, uh, we we sometimes think think that maybe. As mandatory reporters, they maybe should pull that trigger a little uh, more readily, uh, if anything, and then and then yeah. an investigation should occur. Well, you know, we don't just if you see something, say something, right? Right. Yeah. That, yes, exactly. Yeah, because I mean, if if even if you're wrong a couple times, the one time you're right. It, you know. Yeah, and that's why we have the mandatory reporter laws. You know, because we you know we want people in those positions that are most likely to see this sort of thing. We want them to report to law enforcement. And then law enforcement can, you know, uh, engage in their function, do an investigation. And, you know, and if the investigation leads to a conclusion that this is not an accurate report, then we certainly don't want to uh, charge that person. At what point does that become public information? Uh, so when we, when we file the case, uh, then it's public. So, so there can be an investigation done before you file? Oh, yeah, there's always an investigation done before we file. So not just in these cases, but in in every case. The prosecutor's office, we don't do investigations. Uh, We review investigations and make decisions about whether to file the criminal charge. Law enforcement does the investigation. So uh, like on these child abuse cases, you have those highly trained detectives that uh, are trained to look at the evidence, you know, look at everything they can get in the case. Uh, In these cases, we have a forensic interviewer that, um, is trained to not ask leading questions of the child, mm-hmm. uh, really walk the child uh, through it, and, and uh, um, you know get a get a good statement that again not leading, not very important in these cases. You know, going back to you know that uh, kind of scenario at the beginning that I said, say you have a six-year-old child that makes a disclosure. Well, you know, six-year-olds are suggestible because they're you know they're kids. Yeah, and, you know, this is really important to in the investigation, make sure that nobody is, you know, 
putting words in the mouth of a six-year-old. You know, as a 36-year-old, you know, you could say something, and 36-year-olds can say, no, that's not what happened, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but in these cases, uh, that, uh, you know, can be a problem. So that's, that's been an area where there's been a lot of research and the investigation of these cases. But if, if uh, either somebody that had mandatory reporting or a neighbor or a family member suspected something, maybe um, a child mentioned like, oh, yeah, once in a while I get touched in that place or mm -hmm. something like that. But they don't want to ruin the parent's life if it's not really happening. Mm -hmm. They don't have to worry about that information. They could report it. Uh, there can be an investigation. And as, as long as it um, doesn't go any further, it's not going to be the public knowledge. Yeah, I, I, I think I, w I would not want to make any kind of assurance like, hey, you can report and no one, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, you do have, um, you know, the Public Records Act in Washington that is very robust, you know, so uh, investigations uh, a lot of times can be subject to, uh, 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 to those requests. Uh, while the investigation is going on, they're generally not subject, uh, but they're you know they're usually going to refer the case to us. You know, they, they, fair number of cases, I guess, or a number of cases, law enforcement will look at it and they're just like, yeah, there's no, there's nothing there, and they're not even going to uh, give it to us to look at. A lot of times, if it's closed, they'll give it to the prosecutor's office just to make sure that we see it also. Um, so once we have it, it, it is subject to the Public Records Act if we if we get it at the end of an investigation. Um, the the place where it definitely will become public is uh, if law enforcement does the investigation, give it to the prosecutor's office, we determine it's there and we file a charge, it's, it's public. Um, is it possible for somebody to anonymously um, report? It can, yes, uh, although it can make the investigation more difficult. Uh, but it, yeah, uh, pe you know, people can uh, call law enforcement and uh, make a report and, you know, um, I mean, you, you can send an anonymous letter. Yeah. Well, I'm that, thinking that's like possible, but there's got to be scenarios where maybe a brother knows that his brother is being abusive to his kids, but he doesn't want to be the one that calls him out on it. Right. And so I could see how there would be times where you'd want to make an anonymous. Yeah. 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 Unfortunately, uh, that mechanism is, is not really there. I mean, if, if a person, reports to law enforcement, you know, in the scenario you just did, say it's a brother and he knows his brother's doing it, he does you know, he's torn, doesn't, you know, but knows what's happening and needs to report. Um, there's not a mechanism if that person makes, you know, an actual report to law enforcement to remain anonymous. Uh, that, that. Yeah, they could be uh, it's kind of, yeah. Yeah, subpoenaed to yeah, witness absolutely. and that yeah, kind of be, yeah, testimony. His name will be in the police reports, yeah. uh, you know, so. Like I said, you know, like true anonymous is if, if you know, if, if uh, it's a phone call, that sort of thing, uh, with, you know, no identifying information. But, you know, for law enforcement to start an investigation, you know, they need, you know, something that, you know, has uh, something that they can work off of. Um, does uh, every big city, big county have a, just, a children's justice center? Uh, so... Uh, I can't speak to nationally. It's it's really become the accepted model for all of the larger counties. Uh, so if you were to uh, uh, look across the state of Washington, uh, Snohomish does, we do, King County, Thurston, um, Cowlitz, 
they're, they're definitely, when you start getting on the other side of the state and so in a lot of the smaller counties, they don't, you know, because like I say, you just, you know, if it's a, if you're in a small county, you know, and there's, you know, you know, instead of a huge law enforcement force and, you know, large prosecution force and all those assets, uh, you just, you know, you just can't specialize. Yeah. So, you know, if you're in. There's only so much resources. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of they don't have them, but it, it is the accepted model and has been for quite some time for larger counties that have resources to, to go to this model. All right. Well, not a fun topic to talk about, Ryan. Do you have anything you want to add before we talk about something that's a little more enjoyable? Yeah, I was just going to say let's let's get into Tony's story yes. and, and how uh, how he got to be where he's at. The and, other uh, fun stuff yeah. about criminal prosecution. Yeah. And, and we had a, a great conversation, very friendly conversation that didn't revolve solely around right. this because we started talking about fishing, and then it was it's almost like that was so much more fun talk. than yeah. talking. <laughs> but this stuff needs to be talked about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I li- I love talking about this this stuff. And like, like you said, it's, it's, you know, it's not, you know, you don't just walk up to somebody uh, at a cocktail party and start talking about child abuse, unless yeah. you happen to be at a fundraiser for child well, abuse. And, so. and if it's but okay, it's, I do want to say one more thing. One story that got, that hit me is the one you shared with me. If, if it's okay, I might talk a little bit about sure. it. It was, there was yeah. a, um, uh, you're going to have to totally correct me because I'm going to butcher this, but uh, there was a um, autistic child yeah. uh, that was beaten to death by his family. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, by his, uh, basically, I would say stepfather figure. Yes. And that resulted in a conviction right. um, this last spring. Right. And I couldn't even imagine that happening in my community. Um, that some of the, that, I mean, I could imagine it happening in somebody else's community, right? right? But here in little old Clark County, a crime yeah. like that happens. Yeah. And to know that the Children's Justice Center was there to provide the resources to make sure that there was a conviction yeah, um, and get that person off the streets, even though there's no bringing that little boy back. Yeah, it was, it, it was, a, it was a horrible case. I prosecuted that one myself. Um, and, you know, um, I've prosecuted a lot of horrible cases personally over the years. Um, that one was really, really sad, awful, um, you know, keeps you awake at night. Really bad. Silver lining, um, the um, uh, the boy's mom, Spanish speaker, didn't speak English, um, and she was a witness to the whole thing. Critical, critical uh, to have her have someone that she can speak to in her la- native language to help her get through this thing. Yeah to get to the point where she's on the witness stand and I'm, you know, asking her to talk about her perceptions while she is right there trying to, trying her very, very best uh, to protect her son from the man that was murdering her son. Um, Horrible case, but having that Spanish-speaking victim advocate at the Children's Justice Center to be there for every time I met with uh, that mom, every time she was in the courtroom for, seemed like forever before we finally got to trial on the case, which we did, and the defendant was convicted. Um, Just, uh, it would have been so much harder to prosecute that case, and so much harder for her to go through that 
uh, without that Spanish-speaking victim advocate that we that we only have because yeah. of the community awareness. So not only did your chances of a conviction were your chances of a conviction were higher because mm -hmm. of, your, of the Children's Justice Center, yeah. but also having the trauma uh, of going through the trial was easier on yeah. the mom. And I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that. Yep. Yeah. Um, bring that GoFundMe page back up. Yeah. So it's stories like this um, that really uh, make you scared. Uh, I mean, I know we shouldn't live in fear, but um, I just think that it's so easy to stick your head in the sand yeah. in your local community. Um, and of course, we see the uh, commercials on TV with the like pets with in the cage with Sarah McLaughlin singing sad right, songs, and it right. pulls at your heartstrings. But yeah. this is here in Clark County. Yeah. Um, so. That's true. Uh, so help us get to that $10,000 goal. Um, anything we can do to help as, uh, as our little podcast here, Tony, reach out. Um, but, yeah, uh, all right, back to fishing. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I'm sure it's uh, it, one question I did have for you. I know we will go to fishing. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, what are your tricks for insomnia? Because I was thinking about this because I've been struggling with insomnia. Yeah. I mean, is it hard? It's hard when you get locked into a case like that. To it's not real, bring it real, home. And, yeah. It's real hard, you know. I, I, um, I, I It's funny because I, um, you know, when I got into this work uh, and I started doing a lot of trials, you know, you know, early on, you know, I started back in, as a deputy prosecutor in 96 and kind of started really doing a lot of trial work right away. And I, I always prided myself on my ability to, in trial, be able to sleep. <laughs> That's a really important skill. A lot of lawyers, you know, they, they want to stay up till four in the morning working on the case. Uh, and, you know, if you're in a trial that's a week long, well, that's cool for the first or second, maybe the third day. But, uh, you know, the lawyer that's had, had some sleep by, <laughs> by the fourth and fifth day is a, is a little sharper. Um, but that, you know, it's one thing if, if you're doing one type of case and you can sleep. When you're doing uh, a case like the one I was just talking about, uh, well, you know, your ability to sleep at night is, is impacted. It's just, it's just the way it is. Well, I mean, in, uh, I met Jackson. Yeah. What a stud. That kid, that kid. And I knew, right when I walked in, I knew, he was, I knew which one was your son. Yeah. It wasn't hard. <laughs> uh, but, um, uh, but there's a lot of parents out there and, you know, when you see those kind of cases or you hear about it just on our podcast or on TV, and then you go home and you, you imagine something like that happening to your kids, right? Yeah. It, it, yeah. When you, get it, when you get wrapped up in these kind of cases, it doesn't, I think it doesn't matter what kind of person you are, what kind of parent you are. Yeah, you, you're going to have those intrusive thoughts. But, mm -hmm. you, just, you know, I think any, anybody that gets wrapped up in these cases doing this work, uh, you know, you, you go home and you and you separate, and you know you you're a good you're a good parent, and and you just have to, you know, you ha you have to still have that trust in society, like you know, like you did before we started talking about this. That this doesn't really happen that much, and you still can step back and say, okay, you know, we on average about 175 uh, per year. That's uh, crazy. That's a lot. But it's, this is a great community. 
if you look at it, you know. Yeah, and it's not to say it's Clark County super small. Yeah, yeah, it's not a dangerous community. You know, it's not like it's rampant here versus other places. You know, it's a, you know, I, I feel safe. You know, or I feel like my kids are safe. Yes. You know, yeah. or uh, and I feel like your kids are safe. You know, so it, it's, um, you know, you just, yeah. Uh, if you do this work, you do have to be able to pull back and and remind yourself. Sure. Okay. People are good. People are intrinsically good. I like people, you know, and and that's just an important thing to to be able to do. So you became a, a prosecuting attorney in '96. Is that correct? Uh, a deputy prosecutor. Yeah. Okay. I, st- I started out actually in the Spokane County uh, Prosecutor's Office. I actually interned there starting in '94. So I was, uh, I was still in law school and started started uh, trying cases as an intern. You know, doing. District Where did you court, go to law school? DUI, Gonzaga. Oh, nice. In Spokane, yeah. Yep. So, um, and then, uh, you know, right um, right out of law school, started in the uh, Spokane prosecutor's office. And uh, I worked there um, until 2000. So I kind of did all the different types of cases there. And I was, I was actually on their major crimes team for the last two and a half years that I was there. So I was doing um, all Class A felonies and homicide uh, cases. Uh, but I'm from this area, my wife's from Spokane, so it took, you know I'm a pretty good lawyer. But it did take me five years to convince her <laughs> <laughs> to uh, to move down here, um, and uh, so we 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 came uh, uh, here in uh, uh, in 2000 and been here since. So when you were going to law school, did you know this is the direction you wanted to go? Yeah, yeah. yeah. This this is uh, this is the work that I uh, wanted to do. The, the, I went to law school with the with the idea of doing this work. Um, and when were you guiding up in Canada? So that was uh, before law school. Um, it was in uh, 19, the summers of 1990 and 91. I was a fly fishing drift boat guide on the Bow River uh, on, uh, out, of, uh, out of Calgary up in, up in Canada. I just got to go to the Stampede this summer. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I did. I missed the Stampede because I was on the river at the time. (laughs) Traffic was always horrible in Stampede Week, getting from the hotel to the Bow River. There was a lot of people there. Yeah, but I I always wanted to go to it. We'd watch it at night after getting off the river, and it it looked... uh, uh, looked awesome, but I, I always missed yeah. it. For the listeners that don't know what we're talking about, it's a rodeo. <laughs> the Calgary Stampede. Cal- 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 and yeah. the fair, is, it's huge. It's yeah, like yeah. the Clark County Fair times. I, I'm sure it's giant now. It was a long 10. time ago. Yeah, but the Calgary Stampede was a, it was a real big deal back then, too. Yeah. Um, and uh, fly fishing, it's it's a different type of hobby. Yeah, right? it is, yeah. Um, and I like it because... Uh, and you tell me what you think. You think you know, if I'm just reading too far into my own hobbies, but um, I like having hobbies outside of my career uh-huh. that kind of utilize similar skills uh-huh. that you use in your in your uh, job or at mm-hmm. your job. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of feel that way about fly fishing quite a bit because um, it's much more than just casting mm-hmm. um, a stream, but it starts in your understanding of the uh, biology behind the river right. and all that. So. Um, it's a great, for me, it's been a great escape and a great way to kind of stay balanced. Yeah. Uh, do you agree? And is that why Jackson's in fly fishing now? So I completely agree. Uh, you know, I use my lawyer skills frequently when I fly fish. I, <laughs> a lot of times if I'm swinging, uh, if I'm spay fishing for steelhead and I haven't had a grab, I'll, I'll start to make convincing arguments uh, to the steelhead. It, it, re- it works. No, seriously. Uh, no, I, I do agree with what you said. Uh, I, I, 
I've, I've always really been into fly fishing because there's there's so much to it. Yeah. Uh, you could re- you could get so immersed in fly fishing and all the, and the different types of fly fishing and swimming for steelhead and dry fly for trout. It's a slippery slope. It's oh, like, yeah. It's like, oh, I like fishing. I'm going to yeah. try fly fishing. Oh, fly fishing's fun. Boom. Oh, no, I have a problem. Nerd. Yeah, I turned into a complete nerd. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> My wife walks in. She's like, I don't even recognize you. What are you doing? I'm, yeah. so, I'm tying flies. Yes. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She 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 calls me a nerd all the time. but. Yeah. My my wife uh, refers to me as a nerd at times. Also, that's okay. I think that's healthy. There's worse places to spend your spare time than okay. on the side of a river. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I I think it's I actually, um, my wife encourages me to go fly fishing because you know, you, you know how it is. You get you get jammed up in uh, in your head with work, uh, and um, I I have to I have to go to the river. Uh, you know. I, I, and I could go for just a couple of hours, um, and it, it it just improves my outlook on life. So whose idea was it for your son to become a guide? Did you encourage him to do that? So um, I, I, I don't know why I gravitated to fishing in general, like, you know, when I was really, really young, uh, and I got really into fly fishing starting at, like, age 12. I just, I just became really fascinated with it, and I, you know, started to tie flies and read all the books that I could, you know, and then, uh, you know, got really into it. And um, so my my oldest son Jackson, I have two, I have two boys. Uh, my younger boy Carson is 15. My older boy Jackson is 19. Um, uh, when Jackson was big enough to be in one of those uh, backpacks, and I could, you know, uh, take him to the river. He was in the backpack with me, and I'd hook a fish, and and he'd he'd like he'd kind of, you know, stand <laughs> up in the backpack. It, it, he just, you know, I don't know how he got into it. <laughs> so he he just uh, loved it uh, from the get go, and uh, we've fly fished uh, together uh, a ton, and um, he. He um, he was hanging out in the Grease Line Fly Shop um, yeah, here in Vancouver. Uh, the owner um, got closed down after I think I think he had it for like forty years. He yeah, closed down just a couple of years ago. So you know, Jackson was a kid, and he'd go in there and hang out. And you know, next thing you know, he's tying flies for him, and uh, you know, and then stocking shelves and that sort of thing. And um, and uh, it just seemed kind of obvious that Jackson would become a fly fishing guide so now he is well because at, at 19 i can't think of a, a cooler thing to yeah. do is one you gotta make money fly fishing yeah. but also the lessons that you probably learned and he's learning now being a guide at such a young age mm-hmm. and the responsibility mm-hmm. and knowing first aid in case someone falls yeah. over and cracks their head open yeah. and uh, the responsibility of taking people in a drift boat yeah um, and then the responsibility of helping them catch fish. Right. So to do all that at 19, those are lessons that, you know, carry you through until you're prosecuting horrible crimes. Right? <laughs> yeah, it was interesting talking to him about it, just exactly like you talked about. You know, he, when he's saying, you know, they wanted to be a guide, and he's talking about, you know, you know, taking people to, you know, in the drift boat to catch fish. And he's, you know, he's been rowing a drift boat for years. Um, but then when he actually started to officially do it, you know, having those conversations about, Hey, you know, I'm not going to be there to make sure the boat is loaded perfectly and the safety chain's on. 
uh, you yeah. know, and it just, you know, kind of all those little details, you know, making sure that you have the appropriate number of life jackets and uh, all, all of that stuff. Yeah, it's, it's uh, um, he's done really well in it. But yeah, as a, as a parent, you know, when you know, your kid's going to go out and do something like that at first, you're, you're kind of a little nervous at first. But sure. He's done very well in it quite happy well and then you know all the marketing and doing all that um and now i re- i went into that fly shop in south yeah. jackson that day um and i started throwing some curveballs just having fun with them uh-huh. you know like because uh, i'm going on a big trip to south america and so i said well, what kind of rod uh should i get and he started throwing off and i said well here's the biggest thing before you take rods out is i have a carry-on that only fits a rod this long right. and i don't want to check my rods i want to bring them on with me uh-huh. and it's like instantly he knew oh you need a beulah saltwater rod i know you're not fishing saltwater but this is the one you need for the power to get through the wind and it's this long let me see if i can get you one <laughs> it's like right like that i'm like wow that's he's awesome. sharp. That's a sharp for a 19 year old that's pretty sharp yeah he he so. uh he's about as fixated on fly fishing as i was uh but he's, he's definitely ahead of where I was at 19, I didn't start guiding until I was 22. So he's <laughs> well, I'm thinking the conversations that that he's going to have, you know, the the people that are coming on these trips. Oh yeah, those those types of con- conversations are invaluable. Oh, in absolutely. Life. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. You you definitely get to uh, talk to some really neat folks when you're, uh, you know, taking them on fly fishing trips. And, yeah. So do your do you want to see or do your do your sons want to follow in the footsteps of, of law no <laughs> <laughs> without hesitation you know they, it's kind of funny they uh i was a deputy prosecutor for a long time and i loved being a deputy prosecutor what's and the difference so layman? so it's like a sheriff and and sheriff deputies that's the easy way because everybody kind of realizes, oh yeah there's a sheriff and then there's the deputy it's just similar so gotcha. uh, deputy prosecutors um, they're the folks that are working cases every day that's what what you do as a deputy prosecutor you, you know these cases that we've been talking about you know uh, if it's a child abuse case or it's a uh, property crimes or drug crimes or major crimes domestic violence crimes you know whatever it is you do you're doing those doing those cases and you know most people if they want to be a, a prosecutor, that's what they're thinking about. They want to they want to do uh, the work of going, working the cases, going to trial, prosecuting yeah. cases. Like the pro- Tom Cruise, like a few a few good men. Yeah, like that. Yeah, the cool stuff. Yeah. Right. And, and then you have the prosecutor, this guy, <laughs> who uh, I run the office. Uh, you know, uh, it's an elected position. So I, like I said, I was the deputy prosecutor um, starting in '96. Uh, and loved the work, um, and you know, I was here in the Clark County Prosecutor's Office and our major crimes team doing a lot of the heavy cases, kind of specializing in homicide cases. And uh, Art Curtis was the prosecutor, uh, and he was our prosecutor for 30 years. Well, he decided he was going to retire, uh, and uh, I, you know, if if he had been a, um, you know, a younger guy, it'd be funny if I was if he was here, and I would say if he was a younger guy, because he'd take umbrage with that. But uh, <laughs> you know, it, you know, circumstances were different, and you know, he wasn't uh, at retirement age. I would be just completely happy still being a deputy prosecutor and doing that work. But you know, he did retire, so I needed to leave the office. 
uh, and um, you know, people in the office supported me, wanted me to take over and take that uh, How position. How long of a term is it? Four years. Four years. Yeah, four-year terms. So and then there's uh, no limitations on how many times you can be reelected. Right. Yeah. So. So what's the election the election process like? For, uh, for, super, for you. It's super fun. Uh, <laughs> just for people that are thinking about uh, being in an elected office, it it, it 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 was interesting actually for me. So, uh, you know, when I ran the first time in 2010, uh, you know, three years before that, four years before that, I I had no intention of being uh, an elected official because I really loved the work of being a prosecutor. I, I I still love that work. I still take cases like the one that we're talking about that I did this spring. I can't take very many cases anymore because of large sure. office. But I, I love that work because I, 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 I like trying to help people and solve problems. I, I like doing that. And, and I, like, I like going to work and thinking, you know, my job is to seek justice. It's not to make money. It's not to represent a client. It's to do justice, you know, and if justice means dismiss the case because that's the right thing, that's justice. If justice means uh, prosecute the case to the fullest extent, that's, you know, so that's, you know, that was your goal and, you know, to, to try to right a wrong, you know, and, and um, try to make it better for somebody who had a bad thing happen to them. So mm -hmm. that, you know, that's what I did. I loved it. Um, But uh, the work that I do now is, uh, you know, as the elected prosecutor, it's, it's very, very important. And, and still, it's to, you know, seek justice. That's, you know, what I do as the leader of the office. Um, so it, it was an interesting transition, though, going from being, uh, you, know, you know, interested in politics but not wanting to be that interested in <laughs> politics uh, to saying, okay, I'm going to, you know, run a campaign in a contested race and, you yeah. know, uh, do that. And, and, I, and I did, you know, and I didn't have any specific training, but I was an experienced trial lawyer and I kind of identified, uh, analyzed it a lot like a trial, you know, because people are going to make a decision when they vote, like jurors are going to make a decision. So I just kind of looked at, you know, what's my evidence? Am I the right person for the job? Do I have reasonable, compelling arguments that I'm the right person for the job? Uh, and then, uh, you know, took a, uh, you know, a, that, that year and uh, did, did the regular job and, and then uh, campaigned like crazy. How much also. of it do you think comes down to the paragraph that's in the voter pamphlet book? Because that's, a, that's an important paragraph. Right? Yeah. Because it, yeah. for those, for those um, uh, type of elections, you know, I, like this last election you have, the president and the congressman, and you know all these names, and then you get down to some of the judges and the sheriffs, yeah, and you're like, yeah. so sometimes I just won't vote. Sure. I'll skip that one. Right, yeah. If You don't, you don't want to make the wrong choice. You don't want to make the wrong yeah. choice, but then sometimes I'll read the blurb, mm -hmm. and that might be the only sure, information yeah. I've received on yeah, that. Yeah, so I, I, I can tell you, every good uh, um, politician, they, they spend a lot of time on that hundred words. That paragraph. Yeah, that's a <laughs> two hundred words. Yeah, because yeah. yeah, most everyone else, the big ones, you already yeah. have your mind made up. Right. Before yeah, because you, get to you the know. Poll, but the other yeah. ones, those yeah. kind of voter yeah. pamphlet. Yeah, you're not looking at president and going, well, what do they say in the voters pamphlet? <laughs> 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 I don't want to restands on this topic. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, um, 
let's wrap up. Before we do, I want to ask you a question, and I'm excited to get your answer. We try to ask everybody that comes on the podcast is, what about success is important to you? What about success is important? Or why, why is it important? Why? Yeah, so uh, that's an interesting question, and, and um, I'm sure, you know, everybody has a, I'm sure, very interesting personal analysis about what success means and what's important. I, 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 don't, I don't think that I think day to day about, do, you know, what am I going to do to be a success? you know, what I have tried to do in my life and in my professional career is do the right thing, um, work hard, um, be a good husband, father, member of the community, be a good person. Um, and if you succeed in doing those things well, that equals success to me. So that that's, um, I, th I think that would be how I'd answer that. Awesome. Um, well, and you're just a passionate guy. Yeah. You know, I think that comes across. I think you couldn't be a fly fishing guide, a prosecuting attorney on horrible crimes and do the things you do without being a passionate guy, right? Without you, having passion. You got to have passion and work ethic. You got to have those things. All right. Go to our GoFundMe page. There should be a link around the window. Yep. Um, uh, hit us up on social media if, if there's any, uh, thing you get, any, anything you can do to help. Um, but, yeah, get on there. Get your coworkers on there. Every, every dollar helps. Uh, let's hit our goal. Um, I think that's all I got. All right. Thank you, Tony. Go ahead. Thank you so much for having me, and thanks so much for, you know, um, talking about the Children's Justice Center and, and you know, uh, turning in this uh, into, you know, uh, trying to raise raise awareness and raise funds for a really important cause. So, Well, this I is really our first that. attempt to use our powerful influence. To use your good. power for even more good. Yes. So, <laughs> Thanks, um, you guys. So jump on there. Thanks, right. Tony. Thanks. All right. Thank you.